You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. But I think those rules of storytelling can vary. Uh, and what's been so exciting about um, musicals uh, in the last um, you know, several years is that a lot of things that are not formulaic have gotten attention. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. You're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. That's the genie from Aladdin wishing you into today's podcast. And if you know this podcast, then you know the genie from Aladdin does a lot to inspire a lot of conversation here. But here today, he's doing twice the job because he's also the perfect introduction to today's guest of the podcast, Ken Chernelia, who was the dramaturge for Disney for over 15 years. He actually worked on Aladdin, but he works independently as well, worked on Hadestown, a whole bunch of stuff. He's going to tell you exactly what a dramaturge is and what it does, which is a question I've actually had for many, many years. And we get into quite a conversation about it. Uh, but before we get to that conversation, I want to thank my pal Justin Guarini for sponsoring today's podcast with his audition secrets. Now, look, let me tell you something. I see a lot of auditions as a producer, a lot. And this is for all you actors out there. It is very obvious to me. The people who work on their auditions, who master the craft of auditioning, which is like its whole own thing, a very important skill, and the people that just walk in the door and wing it. Guess who gets the jobs? That's right, the people who work on the craft of auditioning. And Justin has a whole program called the Audition Secrets, okay? You can get it at justinguarini.com or click the link in my blog or in the episode notes to get in contact with Justin to book one of his 40-minute online vocal audition audits. I mean, this is so smart. You gotta get good at this stuff. And you'll work together with him online in a face-to-face audition audit. You'll discover your own personal connection to the material. You'll learn how to calm your nerves. Like this is something he talks about very specifically. Yeah, because even Justin gets nervous. He's gonna tell you how to calm yours. Uh, And he's going to record the whole thing, send it back to you. You're going to learn a ton. And I'm telling you, just one of these audits, just one, will make you a better auditioner. If you're a better auditioner, you're more likely to get the gig. So again, click the link in my blog or in the episode notes to get in contact with Justin and book that online vocal audition audit today. And now let's get to that podcast with the other Ken. I want adventure in the great white 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Ken Davenport here. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective podcast. My name is Ken Davenport. Today we are discussing something I know very little about. Professional dramaturgy, like dramaturges, something like that. Uh, And we're going to do it with one of the best in the biz. Please welcome to the podcast, Ken Chernelia. Welcome, Ken. Thanks for having me. I like your first name. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. Okay, so Ken, to give you a little background, Ken uh, was the dramaturg on the innovative Broadway hit Hades Town, which uh, I think he did a pretty good job on that show. Won eight Tony Awards, including Best Musical. We just had Mara Isaacs, the producer, on just a few weeks ago. Also was the dramaturg on Peter and the Star Catcher and was the resident dramaturg for Disney theatrical productions for 16 years with the mouse. That's amazing. Developing over 70 titles for Broadway touring international and licensed productions. I can't wait to get into the differences of all those things, including Hunchback of Notre Dame, Freaky Friday, Aladdin Newsies, Little Mermaid, and so on and so on. He was the past president of the Literary Managers and Dramaturges of America. And get this, he holds a PhD in theater history and drama criticism from the University of Washington. Does that mean we, we should call, I should call you doctor? You can if you like. Do people call you doctor? I don't require it. Some people do. They do? <laughs> yeah. I, I think you deserve it. How many years in school was that? Oh, uh, let's see. Grad school was altogether um, five years. Yeah. And wow. you know, I did like five or six years in undergrad because I was a button for education. So tell me, what is the path to being a dramaturge? I made a joke in the introduction about not knowing what this is. And really, it's because in the commercial theater world, it doesn't exist as much as it does in the nonprofit. I hear about nonprofits and they assign a dramaturge. If only we did that. It sounds like some producers like Mara were smart enough to do that. So tell me, what, what was your path to becoming this thing? Um, it's, a, it's an interesting path. Um, I did my undergrad at UC San Diego, um, where the La Jolla Playhouse is in uh, residence there. And uh, while I was there in the Department of Theater and Dance, they had a, an MFA program in dramaturgy. So they'd been established already, and I was aware of it. Um, and they had, uh, there at the La Jolla Playhouse was a resident dramaturg who recently passed away, unfortunately early, Robert Blacker. So it was sort of in my constellation of like, these are things that one could do 
um, in the theater. Although when I was an undergrad, uh, I got a psychology degree, but then I double majored in in theater. And uh, you know, like many people, I was focusing on performance. Got a little bit into directing and producing um, while I was there, but hadn't really had the call yet to um, pursue a career uh, as a dramaturg um, until I went to grad school. So I'd. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I just know that uh, I knew that I wanted to learn more about theater. So I decided to pursue grad school on an academic path um, because I'd had some mentors in undergrad who um, got PhDs with theater historians or um, theorists or scholars, but also maybe did some directing, still participated in making theater, which I wanted to do. Um, but I loved studying it. Like, what was it about? And I was always asking the big questions. Like, yeah, I saw the play that was amazing, but like, what does it mean? How does it engage culture, philosophical questions, those sorts of things. Um, so when I, I went to, from San Diego, I, I moved to Washington, D.C. to pursue my master's degree there at Catholic University, which has one of the oldest drama departments uh, in the country, and actually sort of had the first uh, professional theater there um, on campus. Uh, Father Harkey founded the drama department, and that's before there was, you know, arena stage. Uh, there. Uh, that's where um, the people in government went to go see theater for a few decades before Salva founded Arena Stage. Um, so they had a lot of history there. Anyway, I was first a semester in my uh, MA in, in theater history and criticism, and I had a class in dramaturgy, my first official class. Even though like, I'd known dramaturgs, I'd been taught by dramaturgs, this is my first class. I'm like, all right, I'm going to learn about this a little bit more formally. And at that point, there were probably maybe two books in existence about dramaturgy. Uh, but we had the literary manager from Arena Stage come and visit our class, uh, Kathy Madison, and she told us about the work that she did. And I was fascinated by it. And I thought, hmm. And she had an internship. Uh, and I applied for it, and I got it the next year. So in the, dating myself, in the uh, 1998, 97-98 season, I was the literary intern there. And I was assigned to two of the eight shows as the dramaturg. And uh, so it was basically applying everything I was learning in school to the making of a show. So the context of it, uh, I, had, uh, I worked on two shows, which are sort of the two types of um, production dramaturgy. One was a Eugene O'Neill play, and, uh, and the other was a, a new play by John Klein, a domestic comedy. So I got to do research into A Touch of the Poet um, and and bring that research and like, Eugene O'Neill wrote this play, what were the original circumstances of it, what does this thing mean, um, to bring in uh, research and context to make new decisions about reviving the play, and what so is it going to mean now? I want to stop you just there because I think that's where there's so much confusion about what you do and I'm just learning as we go because I only think about dramaturgy of course when I'm creating something new and here you are talking about dramaturgy a Eugene O'Neill play and I'm like what well the guy wasn't around like what was he telling him to rewrite the second act like no you're talking about a whole different form of research about it and so yes yes it's it's different applications of the same skill set essentially so um, if a dramaturg is trained in theater history dramatic literature sort of like both broad and deep and bringing that uh, knowledge and skill set to a production, it can be with an existing text and maybe a playwright who's no longer around. And so then the dramaturg would be maybe the advocate for that playwright and uh, in the room. 
um, which is a lot of what production dramaturgy is sometimes known for and why, you know, regional theaters maybe have someone on staff. It's like, well, someone needs to know that or bring it to. Someone needs um, to represent O'Neill in yeah. the room. Like, hey, you know, his his like mother had just died. So there may be a concept or sure. the industrial like, we should, revolution. We should know happened. where this came from so we can make decisions about uh, how to produce it now. And even though, you know, that play was written decades ago, we're producing it tonight. It has to have meaning tonight. So we need to be able to translate context and bridge the gap. And also maybe the audience might want to know a little bit more about where this play came from um, to be able to engage with it tonight, but also has to have merit tonight. So we need to make decisions about it. Um, and that, so that same skill set can actually be brought to bear in the development of a new play too. It's just working with a living playwright. So the, 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 the dramaturg doesn't need to be the advocate for, uh, for the playwright who's already there, but may also serve that function. Um, but it's about it's about the context too, and bringing in uh, history. And um, you know, in the case of a new play, the dramaturg um, functions. You know, there are many analogies you can use. But say, uh, publishing houses have editors who develop relationships with writers and read drafts and give feedback and help make the thing what it needs to be. But at the end of at the end of the day, the thing gets published, and the author's name is on it. But it doesn't mean there wasn't someone else working. On that, and I think a, a dramaturg for new work is often in that position of being, you know, a cheerleader, uh, a sounding board, an in-house critic about what about this kind of thing, um, not just for the writer, but actually for the whole team. So, you know, working to, you know, with producers, with directors, with designers, just being part of the creative conversation um, at the service of the work. So, you know, I like to say when I'm working on new work. Um, I'm the suggester, not the decider, but I want to bring in the question. So, like my my work is always at the uh, at the service of uh, a writer's voice and a director's vision, and just being there without you know, it's not it's not my voice and vision, but I'm in it and I'm an advocate for it, and I'm also try try to be part of the process for refining the voice and the vision and getting it to work together, like I'm there for the project and trying to bring often, you know, some of the same analytical skills that uh, theater critics have, but bringing that into the process before it gets to the audience, before it gets to the evaluation uh, of a critic and hopefully anticipating those questions that audiences and critics would have, um, not just about the, the text itself, but about the context. Mm. What does it mean here and now? Why this play and this place at this time? Asking the, the bigger questions. And, uh, and, you know, and bringing experience from other shows, other work, other times to bear, like what's relevant here. So tell me about your actual process. So if I were to, I've got like 17 scripts over here in, uh, in my office, right on my desk. If I were to throw you like, here, I want you to dramaturge this. What's the first thing you do besides obviously read it? Like what, tell me your process. Engaging new work. Because sometimes people will ask me to you know, take a look at something. And so my practice now is essentially um, trying to get and limiting my time because everything leads to something else and you can go down any kind of rabbit hole. Um, so I try to uh, limit my time when I'm first engaging at work and try to like give 30 minutes to reviewing materials. Um, Even a full script. I won't you just... necessarily read the whole script. So I'll see some video, listen to some things, um, try to get my first impression of like, what is this thing? So I'll do that first, and then I'll dedicate the second, so one hour, like free consultation, um, second hour is dedicated to a conversation. Because dramaturgy is about process, 
hopefully to get to the best product possible, but it's about process. How do you lay out a conversation? What is this? Um, why are we here? Essentially asking the most fundamental question, like, what is this thing? Why are you doing it? Why are we here? Why is this, a, why is this going to call itself into an event that will be a community event? Because that's what theater is. Um, so I want to understand, like, what, where's the fire in it? Why are you doing it? Why is it here? Um, and my, why am I, I want to be engaged um, in it. Too. So that that's really what the first thing like what is this thing you know and some of it's about genre some of it's about where did it come from just the context I want to see like just get as quickly as possible what is this thing and and why are we here so because I think you know once you commit to something you lose sight of that you know that first impression or that why are we here and you just you just dive in you know you get committed and you lose sight of someone might come to this thing fresh well you know why you're there like you've been working on a show for four years and you assume everyone knows why you're there and often it's like no i don't understand what this mm. means well of course it means x y and z and yeah. a b and c it's like well it's not clear on mm-hmm. the page yeah so some you know some of the some of the work is about clarity and uh you know one of the great thing and many many things uh you know i learned working at disney for 16 years but it's about uh about widening the audience and increasing the welcome and and making sure there's always something in every project I work on that someone can come in off the street without knowing anything and find some point of engagement and welcome uh, in a project. So particularly when we're deep into something that you know you don't it's important not to play inside baseball. Now there's some projects that are very niche for a very specific audience and that's totally okay. But in working on particularly work that's going to be in a commercial model, and you know, all that means is that your ticket sales have to pay all the bills. That's all the difference there is. It's still people who love theater, it's just a different model for how the event can happen and who pays for it. But that also means you need to sell as many tickets as possible. And so that means you need to increase the welcome as much as possible that's still true to the work. And that's, those are the questions that, that I bring. It's like, how can we actually open this up more and, and it's a big difference. Like increasing the welcome does not mean dumbing down our lowest common denominator. It just means because the theater can operate on many levels of meaning at once, it, it means making sure there's one level of meaning and interpretation that's accessible to someone who doesn't know anything. So, for example, for Hades Town, well, it's super cool for people who are um, mythology geeks to engage this telling of the story, um, which is, you know, comes from the brain of Anais Mitchell. There's a lot of people for whom this is the first encounter with mythology at all. And so we need to tell the story from scratch. Um, And that's that's an important part of the work that I do, is really trying to keep some distance and perspective so that I can come back into the room and ask the question again, why are we here? What's the mission? What are we doing? To keep the, you know, perspective on the forest while people are working on the trees. It's a fascinating insight because I was actually gonna ask next, do you have a different process for looking at Aladdin versus looking at Hades Town? For sure, and because uh, you know this is the well, I've worked with singer songwriters before. Like you know, I, I got to work with Phil Collins. It was one of my first jobs uh, at Disney. Was working on Tarzan with Phil Collins, who's the nicest person in the world. But I was still like, I'm still sort of like awestruck by him. But you know, he's a he's a guy from the music world. He's a songwriter and a drummer and a singer. Um, and so, you know, his, his approach to songs is songs that stand alone. And that's the key 
uh, difference in musical theater is that the songs work together. <laughs> There's a score to build. Um, and so, uh, and, but he'd already you know, provided some songs for the, the Disney movie um, in the 90s. So this was a coming back to it. But working with Anais, now she had created Hades Town initially for as part of like a community theater sort of exploration of it. So there was some dramatic context, but it's still very much in the vibe of a songwriter, a song cycle. Um, and there's, there's a story to tell. There's a story that she relied on there. And so it was really trying to figure out what the DNA of, of Hades Town was. So I had to, and she'd already been working on it for almost a decade before I, I came into the picture and also working on it for a couple of years with Rachel before I came. So um, I had to just go to school on it. And, and I think because I'm a curious person, I'm well suited to the task of like, all right, what is this world? Where does this come from? Who are you as a writer? And what is this thing? Um, and, I and I had to learn the, the DNA of this thing that's not different, but that is different from anything that I'd worked on before. Because Anais was very keen on not writing a traditional book musical, like that Hades Town already had its own identity. It was just bringing it into a theater versus, you know, outdoors or touring as a concert. This was going to be at the theater for the first time in this iteration at New York Theater Workshop. So the context was people were going to come experience Hades Town at a playhouse. So they're thinking play. Um, and so we had to do the work to figure out how to make Hades Town its thing and true to itself and her voice, but also a play. So what are the rules of playwriting? What are Hades Town's rules of playwriting? Uh, and so I had to, I didn't know coming in what it would be. I had to discover what the dramaturgy of the piece was. And it was a, you know, an iterative process. And I think we got to a place where we were pretty happy with it. And that, and that we found that people from different places of knowledge about mythology or music could come and feel engaged in some way. And so I think that just talking to different audience members and seeing them engaged with the show, I'm like, oh, okay, I did it. I did, you know, I did my part to make that, to help make that happen. Are you surprised by its success? Yes. I, I knew that it was good. And I mean, you've already talked to Tamara about it. And you know why she's a, a great leader on the project is that she, helped articulate that, that, that the art was going to be first and that Hades Town does know what it is. And so anyone coming on her caravan to help work on the show was going to be at the service of this thing and that just to have faith in it. Because, you know, as you know, um, at working on commercial theater, like, there's a lot of money to raise. There's a lot of people involved and there can be a lot of voices and a lot of opinions. And it's hard to just figure out, like, which one's right, how to do the thing. Um, and so keeping those uh, filtered and in the conversation sort of in a tight group about what's right and what feels right and what feels like the show. At a certain point when you're developing a show, the, and if you have good ears on, the show will tell you what it needs to be. And, uh, you know, it's a bit of a, a discernment process. But uh, the, there's a there's appeal to Aeneas in her voice, you know, as a singer, but also as a writer. Um, and, it, and it's very clear, and she's very clear about what she wants to write about and what's important. Um, and so what I found in the conversations about Hades Town, what was useful was something that she had a big conviction about may have been something uh, at the service of the poetry. And in the moment and in the detail just sort of felt right. And so I had to pursue that. So I'm like, well, if you have that, if you feel that strongly that it's right, let's try to make it work. 
because something that may be poetically right might be dramaturgically challenging, um, either that it's sort of not lining up, not consistent with other things. And so I, I would say that sometimes we had some, we had some gimmies, some things that don't necessarily line up or aren't necessarily logical, but the audience, the audience will give you some gimmies. Um, and there's a certain tipping point, I don't know at, you know at what, and it's different for everyone, but on a subconscious level, if things don't line up, they're gonna start to divest from it or maybe not trust the storytelling. But there's always some gimmies, that there's just something that's like poetically right in the moment that's just really good there, that maybe doesn't line up, but it's a gimme. Uh, and you just go for it. So I think things can have success um, despite some um, gaps in, in logic, but never because of them. How much do you believe in a formula for storytelling, whether that's the monomyth, hero's journey, whatever you want to call it, and especially being from Disney and knowing their belief in these kind of story points or pillars of storytelling, yeah. especially in musicals, how much does that apply? Um, you know, I think like in, in any field, uh, in any profession, there are best practices. Um, and even uh, Aristotle, when he was writing the Poetics, um, wasn't doing it, uh, wasn't establishing rules for tragedy because we only have some of them for comedy, but the ones for tragedy we have, and it wasn't based on like, he, he didn't do it in a cave somewhere, he based it on theater going and seeing what worked the best, and these seem to be the things that were in common about what worked the best, whether it's like unity of time and place and you know certain things that happen with your protagonist, um, and so there are some best practices, and so when I talked to writers, I'm like, you know, here's some things that have worked in the past, um, but I don't think that equates to a formula. What makes something successful is that it's appealing. You know, they've got some characters that are appealing, and you can have, you know, uh, an anti-hero who's just like a bad person, but there's something about that that's appealing. And I think you need to have a, a clear world and some um, tell the audience where we are and what's happening, what are the rules of storytelling within the first, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, so then they can not worry about it and just go with you. Um, that's pretty consistent. But I think those rules of storytelling can vary. Uh, and what's been so exciting about um, musicals uh, in the last um, you know, several years is that a lot of things that are not formulaic have gotten attention um, and been appealing and, and shown themselves to be successful. So I don't think there's a formula, but I think, you know, like anything, you have to learn the rules in order to break the rules. Um, and there are some rules, but that's just based on what's been successful, not that they've been invented uh, in the dark. Um, so no, I don't, I don't think there's a formula, but I do think every show has a DNA and we need to learn it, but it has to have a reason for being, and it has to have a central appeal to it and a fire to it. Like, why are people gonna come to see this thing? That's the question I'm always asking. And for Hadestown, I think it was, there was something really exciting by the, about the voice and then everything that's layered into it, like it's actually not just vibey, it's about something and it has meaning. And so, you know, the work that, that, that I've done on it with, uh, with the team has been about just wading through a lot of material and getting to the, what's the key thing and what is this melody that he found and what is this story of the epics and how does it relate to other things? And, um, and part of it was just being in the world of Hadestown and having it tell us what was key 
and uh, and then just refine it over time and get it clearer and better and more inviting. What I love about what you just said, which is something, to be honest, I never imagined a dramaturge saying, is why are people coming to see it? I always think of dramaturge, I think there's this reputation, it's the word itself, it seems so fancy, yeah. that it's like, oh, it's all literary, it's all about the page and the word choice and the history and this is an anachronism and all these things, when what you're saying is, no, no, I... Why are people paying $150 to come see this thing? That's that's your job, is making sure that that happens. Yes, of course. I mean, I, you know, the, We're the same. Yeah. That's my job, too. Exactly. But I think, you know, so, so how do I bring my expertise to it? And, you know, that uh, people have been practicing um, dramaturgy uh, since theater's been around. There's always been a critical eye to it, and, and what is it? meant and you know any anyone who's reviewing it anyone who's asking questions about it um practice of dramaturgy is just focusing on the structures of meaning um and like how does casting make me i wrote my dissertation on um race and representation in american theater from the 19th century to the early 20th century um in popular american theater and like actually comes into play in working on uh, musicals now because because it's about what makes meaning for sort of a wide uh, audience and uh, you know casting structures make meaning who's playing what role um, in a multiracial society um, and, and casting decisions make meaning and you know what songs in what order make meaning the score has meaning um, the text has meaning all these things and so it's just bringing those structures into play in a very particular way and so you know people have done the work yes uh, the word dramaturg is a German word and the practice is a, you know, a few hundred years old in Germany and Eastern Europe, but relatively new and called such um, in, in the United States. Um, but people have been doing it. Like I work for, Disney's almost 100 years old and they've been practicing dramaturgy the whole time. You know, whether it's called people who do story or you know, trying to make it the best thing possible and, uh, and doing that work from the inside as part of the process. And so a benefit of having a dramaturg on the team is like that's my only job is to help curate the conversation about it and to work on that because you know we Mara's a dramaturgical producer like Rachel's a dramaturgical director but they have other jobs this is my only job is to help curate this conversation and uh, and be you know an, another voice in the room but at the service of other people's voice and vision what do you this is a two part question yeah. number one what do you think is the most perfectly structured musical from a dramaturgical perspective? And number two, what is the musical that you choose to watch every day for the rest of your, of your life if you had to choose one? That's a good question. Um, every time I see Fiddler, I, uh, I do think that's almost a perfectly structured musical. Um, it just works. It's so simple. Why we're here is so clear. Um, what it's, I mean, it's a famous story about the opening number, but um, you know, it's, it, it came from a dramaturgical question. What is this musical about? Well, it's about tradition. Boom, there's the opening number. Tell everyone what it's about right from the outset. And like, okay, those are the stakes here. This is the story we're telling, but it all comes back to this idea uh, of tradition. So, um, you know, and there's this you know, great new production on in Yiddish, and so it's... Uh, but it works. It just fundamentally works. So it doesn't matter what language it's in. I've seen kids do it. It's it's almost foolproof. You can interpret it in many ways, and like the thing still works. 
and you know, uh, there's there are other things that I think like, oh, why does Book of, Book of Mormon work? Because on its surface, you're like, oh, it's just iconoclastic, and it's you know, and it's foul and vulgar and all this. Like, but underneath, it was written by people who love musical theater, and it's almost perfectly structured. It works. It's like heartwarming in the end, but like all of the, these points, the structure is working, and I think dramaturgy is almost most important in musical theater because there's a lot there's a lot of things going on um, and you can get overwhelmed by spectacle and the fun and all of that but if underneath it you've got a structure that can hold it you can almost do anything on that side you know if you've got a, if you've got a house that's well built that has good bones you can repaint it you can redecorate it you can do all the things because the bones are good and that house will stand and I think plays are the same way but if you've got good structure underneath it you can dress it up and people won't actually know the structure because it's work, it's just working. And so that's what I try to focus on. It's like, what's the structure underneath this thing holding it up? And sometimes I won't even look at the details for a long time in the process because I'm like, we gotta get the structure right. Because you can change the details later, but if something is has a flaw in structure, it's very difficult to fix later. And what's that musical that you'd watch every day for the rest of your life? Your favorite? Um, I think, uh, just because it's meaningful to me growing up, but the sound of music. Hmm. Yeah. Another very well structured musical from. Sure. And stakes are high. You know that's that's set in a you know based on a true story and set in a backdrop of something um, very meaningful. Do you think any idea can be a musical if it's structured properly, or are there some things that should not be musicals? I think there are many things that should not be musicals. When you're thinking about something for a musical, there's two essential questions. Um, one is, should it be on stage? And two is, should it sing? And so you have to answer those questions. Is there something about the theater and the ways that we make meaning and experience things in the theater that adds value to this idea? And will music add value to that idea? And I think things that uh, are musical have to have an emotional content that's worth exploring in music, that music can add value. Like, yes, you can probably write a song about anything, but in, in a musical form, will, will a score help tell this story in a meaningful way? Um, and so you have, yes, you have to answer those questions. I don't think anything can be, I mean, people will try to turn anything into a musical, but something that's successful, that will reach a target, I don't think anything is. In your, yeah. work, in your work with Disney, you've, worked on some titles specifically for the high school market, scholastic market, secondary, whatever you want to call it. Is that, again, applying a different process for that audience, for those? How does that market different from right here in Times Square? There are different destinations. You know, when we think about musicals, people like Broadway, Broadway, you know, that's like the holy grail and getting there. But not, not every project is right for Broadway. Broadway's very expensive. Um, there's a certain audience, there's a certain critical establishment, there's a certain um, expectation for it. Now, what I think is great about Broadway is that there's no curation process, right? Like it's all independent and you just go and if you can get a theater, great, and what theater that is, who knows, and what comes in what season, like it's, it's kind of a hodgepodge. So it's, it's democratic in that way, there's no meritocracy. Um, there, but it, it does have value, and I think people know that. And if something can have a Broadway run, however short, that's it's in in perimeter of, of some some sort of something that you you know reach something. 
but does do people do do all shows have their best success on Broadway? And absolutely not. Some things you know play better in other markets. Um, some things can be overexposed on Broadway that are best um, viewed in a different um, place. And I've worked on you know one of the best things I I got to do is be at the uh, ground level of Disney's work on creating shows for young performers, which uh, MTI had started to do with their their junior shows. Annie Junior was the first one, and had pulled their. Uh, the people who are licensing the shows and like what new what new Broadway shows um, should we make available in this sort of junior one hour um, version for middle schoolers? And what came back were a lot of Disney titles, most of which had never been on Broadway, but were what people thought of as musicals. Um, and so they came to Tom Schumacher, who runs the Disney theatrical, and sort of pitched the idea. But it was a new uh, it was a new venture to try to like wow to like not not be able to control the product, but to create something and then like give it to someone else to produce. Um, was a big uh, was a big risk for the company, I think. Um, but it but it really paid off because it was uh, giving the content to um, particularly kids who would then like own it in a different kind of way. Like, you know, you can you can watch Bell on uh, you know on your DVD. Uh, in the movie, or uh, what's DVD? You can stream it, um, or uh, you know you can go to the park and maybe meet her. But to actually be her in a sanctioned way is pretty cool. And so the affection for these stories and characters just grew. Um, but it made it extremely important to make sure that those scripts and scores were clear, set young performers up for success. You know that uh, things have to be in the right key. It has to be. Uh, accessible you know what not every story is right for middle school and to carve that out and present it in a way like they can't have speeches that are super long it's really you know you're talking about amateur performers who are young who are enthusiastic you need to set them up for success so really went to school and like well what is this how should we introduce these you know kids to these disney shows and in a form that they can do that's you know the right amount of accessible and challenging so they can grow, so they can learn about theater. I mean, the great opportunity was using the Disney name to open doors for arts in schools that have been closed to so many. Like, that is such a great thing to be able to do and work on so many shows over time and keep getting better at them and going back and, like, some of the first ones we do, like, we can do that better. And so we did it again and, you know, created a new version of those. So, yeah, like, for, for schools, there's a different... A different market and like when adults would try to do some of these scripts like a TYA model where adults are performing for children not not really good stuff kind of felt eggy when we thought of them for young performers when adults were doing it so we'd create a different model a different kind of show with different dialogue different approach that adult professional actors could handle that would then bridge a gap it's a different kind of audience something that you know we're shooting for for Broadway uh, might be different from something we just put out uh, on the road um, and some of those are obviously producerial decisions, and some of them have to do with timing. But uh, shows can have a lot of value in other places, and we create them a little bit differently. What's your advice to writers out there who are adapting other material, whether it's a movie, whether it's a play, whether it's a book? Because that's different than creating something original on, like Katie's title, etc. Yeah. So, what what would you your advice be to those adapting material? A, figure out why you love it, figure out why other people love it, and figure out if you're going to adapt the material, and a, and a lot of, particularly musicals, have come from other source material, and they're not original, and that's fine. 
how does bringing something to the stage and uh, adding a score add value? What uh, is the source material well known? What are people going to bring with them in terms of expectations? Are you going to deliver on those expectations that give people the thing that they've come for that they already love about the thing and add value? Otherwise, why are people coming to see something they already know exactly? Because they could probably get it cheaper in some other way. Coming to Broadway is expensive. It's got to be worth it. It's got to have value for the money spent. And that's usually, and with a musical, it's going to be an, an experience that can, connects with you emotionally and leaves you higher than when you came in. On the way. Even if it's devastating, it leaves you somehow um, uh, higher, more, uh, more human in a way when you leave. So, uh, so I think like that's, it's a huge thing we're asking of audiences to come to a Broadway show. And so I think we need to think about fundamentally, what's, where's the fire? Where's the thing that's so appealing that's worth this experience that's now unique in our culture for people to come together um, and turn off their phones and their individual access to a million different kinds of experiences and share something communally with other people um, at a premium price. Uh, I do think it's valuable. I do think people are willing to pay for it. It's increasingly valuable. But what are we offering them? And I think that there's got to be something underneath. There's got to be thought behind it. There's got to be some vision to it. You have to have you not have to know what you, they're the thesis. What are you saying? What are you offering here? Um, and uh, and in adapting the material, where does it come from? Um, when was this first created? Under what circumstances? What's the equivalent now? Um, just because something's beloved in in a novel or a film, particularly something that's like almost perfect in another medium, um, you're kind of setting yourself up to fail, right? So how do you add value? Not just translate it to the stage or translate it into score, but how is doing that adding value to it, continuing a conversation and expanding that conversation? And I think you have to answer that question before you go, because so many people are like, well, I just love it, and I want to make it a musical. That's not good enough. It's got to, you've got to answer some harder questions about it. And it's not saying it's not worth doing. Just spend some time figuring that out, because you're going to need to convince people to spend money to come see your work. You've read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of scripts, I'm sure. What's the most common note you give to writers, or the most common flaw you see in scripts? I think it's... Uh, it's probably the introduction, how you begin a story, which you actually don't quite get right until very late. Because like any kind of writing, you kind of have to write through the first draft and like sort of by the end, you figure out what you want to do. So then you have to go back and start over and write the beginning again. And uh, you know, even on Hades Town, we worked on the beginning of the show in many different versions, many different ways to try to figure out what's the right way to open the show, what does the audience need to know, and what's the experience. So I do think when I, yes, when I'm reading scripts, it's like you, it, it really is true if you get the advice of what you have to capture the reader, someone's attention in the first 10 pages. Just like you have to capture the audience's commitment to your show in the first 10 minutes. And so the, the opening is like, how do you introduce the world? What am I focusing on? And why should I care? And I think that particularly in musicals, um, more than plays, it's why should why should I care? Because I think plays have much more leeway um, in terms of engaging the brain. Oh, and oh, this is interesting. And yes, they have to care on a certain level, but because there's not music involved, 
I don't have to operate on that frequency necessarily. I can bring my brain to this and have a really interesting, engaging time and fire up my brain. But um, in a musical, in some way, you have to fire up my heart. Um, and that's going to be connected to characters that I find appealing uh, in a world that's believable so I can relax and, and, and let my brain still be engaged, but my heart's going to take over. And that operates at a much more complex level. Okay, my last question, which is my genie question, which you okay. worked on Aladdin, so this is perfect. I, I, wa I want Aladdin. you to imagine that that genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and thanks you for all your great dramaturgical work on all the stuff you've done, including helping shepherd Hades Town all the way to Broadway and its big wins. What's the one thing that drives you crazy about Broadway that frustrates you, angers you, makes you want to flip desks over that you would ask this genie to wish away in an instant? What would you change about our world if you were a protagonist in it? What would you want to put it in musical theater structure? <laughs> but what I wish, um, I'd I'd wish that the people could come enjoy theater on Broadway as part of a mosaic of what makes theater an important part of culture that it's not um, it's not the only place that theater lives and thrives that it's part of a much wider community global community that uh, intersects with Broadway as its capital but not the entirety of what makes things tick uh, because uh, for the most part it is um, you know it is very pricey and then there are ways to get into shows and see them um, for cheaper. But uh, for me, it's, it's very important that theater uh, is accessible to people and not seen as something like elitist or prohibitive because I think it, it forms a very important function in society and our ability to hold ourselves together um, and be uh, empathetic. And so uh, in as much as Broadway can sort of keep that is, is the community focus that I think is pretty good about Broadway and uh, as a place to bring people together instead of uh, a playground for people who can afford it. Very good wish and something we're all working towards and I know you're out there working towards it as well. Thanks so much for that. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Ken, for being here today. Uh, and we will see you all next time on the Producers Perspective podcast. Thanks again to Ken for sitting down with this Ken and talking all about dramaturgy. If you are looking for the perfect gift for the Broadway fan in your life, the holidays are a-coming. Get them Broadway's favorite board game designed and created by me. That's right. It's BeABroadwayStar.com. This is our most popular time of the year, as you can imagine, for Be A Broadway Star. We sell a lot of these games, and that means we sell out of these games. It is a no-brainer gift. Everyone loves opening this sucker uh, for the holidays. So go to BeABroadwayStar.com and Get it today. Maybe you'll win a Tony Award. If you're excited for this season of podcasts, I hope you'll do us a favor and review us on Apple Podcasts. Just helps other people find us and spread the word about theater and these incredible artists all over the world. So again, give us a review. iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you are, give us a thumbs up, five stars, whatever you can say in a positive way would be much, much appreciated. If you want to find more of what I'm up to every day, follow me on Instagram. It's at Ken Davenport B-Way. Or check out and subscribe to my blog at theproducersperspective.com. If you Google Ken Davenport, it'll probably come up. And now, the 
favorite part of the podcast for so many of you out there. We're going to break another songwriter. This week's hashtag songwriter of the week is Ben Discant and Sammy Horneff. Today we're playing a song from their musical called The Pirate Princess. We could be pirates. Makes sense if it's from a musical called The Pirate Princess. This is We Could Be Pirates from The Pirate Princess from Ben and Sammy. If you like what you hear and want to learn more about what they're doing and about their show, maybe there's a producer out there who wants to produce it or an agent out there who wants to rep these folks, visit Ben Discant, B-E-N-D-I-S-K-A-N-T dot com and or Sammy Horneff, H-O-R-N-E-F-F dot com. We're going to put these in links to the blog as well, so go check it out there. Google them, Google Pirate Princess, find these people, show them some love as well, and listen to We Can Be Pirates. I can see only two choices. We run away scared, or we fight. Yes! And wouldn't you rather have weapons to draw when they sneak on our ship in the night? We could be pirates, raise our flag to the skies, we'd be pirates, and together. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.